Bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. A lot of stuff going on. We will, of course, continue to keep you updated on the weather as it progresses. This is, of course, a, a major winter event, and... It depends on where you live as to, you know, who gets hit with what stuff. Apparently to the south of Milwaukee, there's a lot more ice, and that's what was predicted. And, of course, ice, you know, none of this stuff is good. There's no question about it. But ice is arguably the worst because ice gets on the power lines, and it causes the lines to collapse or it brings down branches and things like that. You get the power outages. And then, of course, you get the slippery roadways and things. So we're going to continue to keep you updated as the afternoon goes on, but it looks like um, southeastern Wisconsin is in the bullseye of a long-term weather event, and we'll continue to keep you updated on all the things that are going on. I woke up this morning and I had on Good Morning America, and they were up in they were in Minneapolis, which is where my granddaughter goes to to school. Uh, she's a freshman at the University of Minnesota, and it was just. I'm, I'm looking at these reports, and they're they're talking about like 25 or 30 inches of snow hitting Minneapolis, and you think, you know, my goodness, for everybody who thought we were going to get through the, the winter completely unscathed, man, like 25 or 30 inches, if that's what ultimately ends up hitting Minneapolis. Again, though, be careful, but I do want to be that, that kind of Susie Mary sunshine for a moment because we are at the end of February, and the truth of the matter is, Unlike when you get these like monster snow events um, in early January or late December, and then they're normally followed by the, the bitter cold and the polar vortexes, so the snow hangs around for you know weeks and weeks. We're, we're at the end of February, and the, the long term is that it's going to get warmer, and the idea that we're going to get 20 below and it's going to hang around forever probably is not going to happen. Daylight saving time kicks in in two and a half weeks. The daylight hours are getting longer, so get through it. Be safe. We'll continue to keep you updated, but at the end of the day, we're moving towards spring. All right, let me foreshadow something that I, I want to talk about a little bit later on in the program, and it's one of these... It's an interesting issue because it's not often that you have commentators on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News all look at a situation and pretty much have the same take. And th this is one that has generated that. And I'm just foreshadowing this because if you get a moment and you haven't seen this, you, you almost have to take it in to have an opinion on it. Uh, down in Georgia... The there's been a, a an investigative grand jury, and I'll explain this all a little bit later. But you know there was a grand jury that was investigating whether or not there was election tampering and things like that. And the grand jury hears testimony in secret, and then they make recommendations to the prosecutor. It's unlike a federal grand jury where the grand jury actually returns the indictments themselves. But the proceedings are generally considered to be secret, but. Only deliberations are protected under the law. But as a general rule, grand jurors 
don't go public. Well, yesterday, the foreman of this Fulton County Grand Jury went public in a whole series of of interviews, and it's just bizarre. Regardless of whether you agree with what she's saying or not, it's one of those things where legal experts from all across the political spectrum are just shaking their heads going, oh, my goodness, you know, this this woman looks crazy. And secondly, why she thought this was going to be a good idea, and the prosecutors have to be going nuts about this. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but I've got a link to it. If you follow me, it's up on Twitter. It's, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 If you haven't seen this, I've got a link to one of the many stories that are out there featuring this Fulton County four-person who decided that it would be a good idea to go on her own media tour which proves this adage that just because, I don't know, somebody from a television station calls up or somebody from a newspaper calls up, it's not always the best idea to say, sure, I'll do an interview, bring over the cameras. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but I did want to foreshadow this story because you almost have to see her to really have an opinion as to how, at least in my opinion, how bizarre this is. Okay, I want to start with what I think is a very, very odd take that is emerging from something that happened yesterday. You probably heard the headlines. There was a police shooting. It occurred yesterday afternoon, actually, while my show was on the air. Happened about, it started about 1.50 p.m. And police try to make an attempted, they try to stop a car with no license plates in the 7,000 block of West Thurston Avenue. Thurston is just a little bit north of Silver Spring. So Silver Spring, of course, a major east-west artery in Milwaukee County, and so this is a little bit north of 70th and Silver Spring. Car has no license plates. Cops try to pull the car over. What happens? Well, okay, this is Milwaukee, so the driver initially stops, Officers get out of the car, start approaching the car. Driver hits the gas and takes off. Okay, boom, leaving the cops in the lurch. The driver of the suspected vehicle is subsequently spotted near North 60th and Thurston Avenue. So this is about 10 blocks later. The the police see him again, and they try to pull him over again. The driver takes off runs a red light as he is fleeing. Now the chase has gone to 91st and Silver Spring. So we're talking like 60th and Silver Spring. So it's going like 30 blocks. The guy is now running from the cops again. He runs through a red light on 91st and Silver Spring. And that's a relatively busy intersection, if you can picture it, and smashes into another car. At that point in time, the driver who has been fleeing the cops. And again, all this started just a few minutes earlier because the, the guy didn't have a license plate. And they tried to pull him over and he decides to run. So at this point, after fleeing from the cops now twice, running through a red light, slamming into a car, the guy gets out of the car and he's got a gun in his hand and he starts running. Okay, so now we, we've really gone from zero to you know 95 in a matter of just minutes because what turns hopefully was going to be a routine traffic stop has now turned into multiple police pursuits um and a guy now who's run through a red light hit a car fleeing on foot carrying a gun the cops then pursue on foot 
which is, of course, this is a nightmare for police officers. Now, all of a sudden, you're in this life and death situation. You're chasing a guy that has a gun. You can hear, and this, we'll get to this in just a minute, the police are screaming at him, stop, drop the gun, drop the gun, stop. And the guy doesn't drop the gun. At some point in time, the officer, who's a 43-year-old guy who's been on the force for more than five years, shoots and ends up killing the, the suspect. And it's unclear now. The police chief haven't released all the details. One of the questions was, did the guy turn and point the gun at the officers or whatever? That, that'll all come out, okay? So, But you've got the background of the scenario. He's fleeing. Um, he is shot. I don't know where he was shot. I don't know if he turned and confronted the officers. That that's that will all come out in the investigation. And it, it's a fair question to to ask because you're only allowed to use deadly force as a matter of self-defense. You, you, don't, you don't shoot people who are fleeing in the back, for example. But I'm not suggesting that happened. That will all come out in the investigation. That's not what's getting a lot of the attention, though. Apparently, as often happens in these cases, you have bystanders who pull out their cell phones and video, take videos of, of the incident. Hey, there's a police. Police have got a gun out. There's a guy that's got a gun. He's running. Here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to film this. So I don't know. We can look at it and determine whether the police officers acted appropriately or whatever, which I think is kind of an odd situation. But anyhow, there is a cell phone video that has been released by the guy who took this or the person who took it. I don't know if it's a guy or a guy. I think it's a guy. But it's been released. And the, the video shows the aftermath of the shooting. And in, in the video, what happens is, it's kind of tough to tell, but you can see the one of the officers. Now, this is as they're coming up on the man who has been shot. Um, one of the things that you can see is that, like, the officers, one of them kind of, like, grabs him by the leg and and pulls him and then what they do is they kind of lift him up and and, and they try to to sit him up and that's generating all sorts of controversy the question is okay you know what what did they do did they violate procedures afterwards the milwaukee police department this is what they say the mpd is aware of videos that are circulating on social media platforms depicting portions of the incident including officers moving the subject we are conducting a full administrative investigation of this incident we hold our members to the highest level of integrity and if it is determined that any member has violated the code of conduct they will be held accountable a community briefing discussing this incident will be released in the future our number is 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line look there there are all sorts of questions that I, I think are, are really legitimate that this incident poses. Why did the guy run in the first place? Why did he run the second time? Why did he flee from the police carrying the, the gun? Why didn't he drop the gun? Did he turn on the police and confront him? Those are all very, very fair questions. What was it that caused the officer to fear for his life to fire? Th- those are all sorts of issues that, I mean, I, I think are, are fair and need to be answered in determining this. I guess I'm just fascinated, though, that the obsession now is after the man was shot and after he was down and presumably killed by the officer's shots, did the police 
when they were approaching the guy who was fleeing, who had the gun in his hand, you know, did they did they pull him by his leg and did they grab him by his belt and, and flip him up? I mean, at at some point in time, you're thinking, okay, why in the scale of issues presented by this case, it seems to me that that's probably about number 25 on a list of the top 20. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. But that's apparently what some people are obsessed about, you know, what they did when they confronted the guy after the shooting. 855-616-1620, seems to me police just can't win sometimes. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I mean, here's the overall thing. This, this is what inevitably happens when all the bad guys decide that they are going to run from the, the police. You know, in this particular case yesterday, guy, no driver's license, takes off not once but twice on, on the police. Ultimately, after running through a red light and slamming into a car, a guy gets out of the car, flees, carrying a gun. Nobody is arguing that. The police are supposed to chase on foot, and then the man is shot. So, okay, fair questions. Did the, you know, why did the police officer feel the need to, to shoot the man who was fleeing, carrying the gun? Clearly, he refused to drop the gun. But now we're getting all this attention on after the suspect was down, after the guy had been shot, Police officer came back and, and they dragged him. Now, a couple of our texters are saying what they were probably doing is trying to move him away from the gun. I, I don't know what the sense was, but I think this is a peculiar thing to be concerned about. Maybe we start with, you know, wh- why was the guy running from the police in the first place? Why did he refuse to drop the gun? What was going on there? Then again, if you want to focus on why did the officer think it was necessary to shoot, that is a fair question that the investigator will turn out. But now that the, the social media thing, because some guy takes a video, is, gee, when they came upon the body, they grabbed it by the leg and they, they pulled it. Huh? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey Jeff. Good afternoon. Um, another absolutely ludicrous uh, argument going on. Um, it seems like they practice diversion sometimes. They don't want to talk about the real issues, so they focus on something that is, you said, is insignificant really compared to everything else that happened. Um, I don't know if this is by design or they. I, I really don't understand it. Like it just seems like they're practicing diversion to me. Yeah, Mike, thank, thanks for the call. Well, again, there, there, there's all these different issues that are there. I mean, here's one of our texts. Jeff, I haven't seen the video, but if the guy was lying face down after being shot, wouldn't it be common sense to move the body, flip it over to determine if they should do first aid? Kind of hard to do CPR if the guy is face down. Um, yeah, Jeff, if the officers... If the officers were not sure the suspect was dead, they did the right thing to do to pull him away in case he was still close to the the gun. Um, yeah, that that's you know that that that's the question. And and again, this is one. And look, I I I do not pass judgment on whether this is a legitimate shooting or not. We we don't know enough of the facts. We know this is a situation where you have the bad guy who's precipitated this entire incident by running from the police twice, three times, actually, if you consider the foot chase, not dropping the gun, not surrendering, which puts these officers into the situation they're in. So so we know that. But of all the different things we're going to obsess about after the shooting, whether or not the police 
police grabbed the guy by the leg and, and pulled him back. And again, this is this is again part of the part of the reason why I think it's so very difficult to get police people who want to be police officers nowadays because th- this is the scrutiny. Okay, here I've got this situation which is a life and death situation involving in this case the bad guy and the police officer who's chasing someone. Put yourself in the police officer's shoes. He doesn't know why this guy's taken off. He doesn't know why he's fled. He doesn't know why he's running from him carrying a gun. All he knows is that he's running and he's carrying a gun and he's refusing orders to comply. So what's the response? Oh, let's videotape this and end up seeing what happens. You know, what a frustrating sort of situation. Um, Jeff, probably moving him to give life-saving maneuvers away from the fence. Well, you know, could, could be. Um, Jeff, I'm for giving law enforcement the benefit of the doubt, but police need to do a much better and quicker job of communicating what they do and why it's necessary. Otherwise, suspicions and conspiracy conspiracy theories can lead us down the rabbit hole. I I do agree with what the texter is saying. However, um, you you have a situation where you do have to have – the, the investigation that is conducted. And that means you got to go out and you got to talk to the various witnesses and you got to talk to the officer who was involved in the shooting and you got to run the background on the guy. All I'm saying is this is an, it's an unfortunate situation. And it, it could turn out that the police were completely in the wrong after the shooting. Although, again, I ask myself the question, why? why the man was running from the police. If you do not run from the police, you do not carry a gun, don't know what the criminal record was, that's all going to come out in a, a matter of time. But this this rush to judgment, oh, people are upset because, you know, they saw what the police did after the, the shooting and after the guy was down. you got to focus on what the priorities are. And, and maybe let's start, let's start, if you look at what is going on in this community on a regular basis, I've got a half dozen stories today involving police chases where people just run from the cops. Maybe the starting point needs to be, why is it that people just feel entitled to flee in cars, on foot, armed, unarmed, whenever they choose? Maybe that's where we start with the discussion. A number of our texters who watch the video, as I have, I think are, are concluding that I think what was happening is the police, after the shooting, weren't sure if the shooter had been killed or not and were moving his body away from the gun, which would be, I would assume, standard procedure. But again, of, of all the different issues that this presents, that that's what people are obsessing about on social media? Wow. This is a weird provision of Wisconsin law. If you leave a child unattended in a car, um, like a child care vehicle, for example, and the child dies as a result of that, okay, um, unattended, etc., you, you could be liable. It, it's a felony if you do that. And I, I think you know a lot of people would agree. Hey, you know you're, you're leaving. You know you got you got responsibility for you know a child. You leave the child unattended in the vehicle. Bad things happen. I, I we understand that. Interestingly, though, and I guess I hadn't really realized this till I started looking into this. What about if you leave or store a loaded firearm within the reach of or easy access of a child? 
Now, you would think that leaving a gun within the where a, where a kid, a child could get it, would be at least, and then the child does something really bad with it, you would think that that would be at least as serious a penalty as leaving a child unattended in a child care vehicle, right? Well, if you thought that, you would be wrong. Um, under the law in Wisconsin, a child, in this for the purpose of the statute, means somebody who is under the age of 14. Okay, whoever, I'm looking at the law now, whoever recklessly stores or leaves a loaded firearm within the reach or easy access of a child is guilty of a Class A misdemeanor, which is punishable, I think, by a maximum of like 12 months in like the county jail. Um, Okay, it has to have a situation where the child obtains the firearm without the lawful permission of his parent or guardian and... The child discharges the firearm, and the discharge causes bodily harm or death to himself, herself, or another. So it's a misdemeanor if you leave a loaded gun in position where a kid can get it. Now, the reason, of course, is I'm bringing this up is you have what I think that the fifth child who ended up dead in the last week as a result of gun violence. And here's, I mean, what happened last night. Shortly after 8.30 p.m., 900 block of South 29th Street, the reports are um, a five-year-old boy accidentally shot and killed himself after finding an unattended firearm that was there. Now, we don't have all the details, but two men, ages 35 and 58, are in custody in connection with the death. Mayor uh, Johnson came out with a tweet this morning saying he couldn't fathom any reason why a five-year-old should be dead. My heart aches for the families of all children hurt by gunfire. Please make sure to secure guns in a gun safe with a gun lock and out of the reach of children. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I'm I'm somebody who owns a firearm. I've owned a firearm for decades, okay? I, and But I, I appreciate that you, you need to take precautions with that firearm, even though in my my home we, we don't have small children that are around. You know, the, the gun, in our case, it, it's, it's in one of those gun safes, okay? You can't just go in and to the extent that you would have a kid running through the, the house, if they would find that gun safe where it's located, and I'm not sure they'd even find that, they couldn't open it because th- there's that. And I will say this as well, that the gun I keep, I don't keep it loaded. I mean, there are, there, there's, you know, there's ammunition in access to it if you need it to get it. But you, you couldn't, even if you would somehow get into the, the safe, you, you would have to take the step of then locating the ammunition and knowing how to load it, etc. It's not like you've got a loaded gun sitting around where a five-year-old is going to find it. But I, I appreciate that that's, if you're going to be a responsible firearms owner, that's what you have to do, especially if you know that there are children that are going to be around. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. This, it's just a horrible story. And, I mean, I don't know if these were uncles or it's a father or a grandfather. I don't don't know what this circumstance is. But you you have a five-year-old that apparently found a gun 
and used it to kill himself because he was playing with the gun. And I agree, mark the tape on this one, I agree completely with the mayor that there's that this should just not be happening. If you are a firearms owner, you have this responsibility to make sure that gun is kept in a way that kids can't access to it, whether it's find it to play with it or if they find it to play with it, whether they they um, the trigger locks or whatever that would be. I guess I am surprised, though, that the penalty for allowing a child to essentially find your gun and kill themselves with that or somebody else, it's only a misdemeanor. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. And and this, again, it's from the perspective of somebody who is a firearms owner but appreciates the need to be a responsible firearms owner. And I question, is do you need to, do we need to start looking at those penalties? And under circumstances where you are an irresponsible gun owner, and let's let's move away from the facts of this particular case, but a situation where you, you don't have a gun locked up, you allow a child to gain access to the firearm and then something bad happens, should the penalty that you sustain be more than a misdemeanor? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. And this isn't about taking away guns from people. This isn't about allowing kids to go hunting. This is about the responsibility that a firearms owner have has to make sure that the firearms that they possess are not able to be accessed by, well, in this case, a 5-year-old or a 7-year-old or a 10-year-old. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Spring training is here and baseball is back. Keep it tuned here on WTMJ all spring long for Cactus League Baseball. All the sounds of Brewers baseball, including Bob Euchre on the call for some games all throughout the spring training season. Our first spring training broadcast is this Saturday at 2.10 p.m. It's spring training and it's back right here on the home of the Brewers, WTMJ. Okay, if you're just tuning in, you, you perhaps saw the story this morning, five-year-old shot. I believe this is the, the fifth in like the last week, this is the fifth kid who's been shot. Um, the horrible story two days ago, the 13-year-old who was sitting at his dinner table and somebody just pulls up and starts shooting into the house and he's killed. It's just one after another. But this is a five-year-old. Well, now it turns out the five-year-old killed himself, not intentionally, found a gun that was in the residence and shot himself. Uh, two people are in custody right now, a 53-year-old man and, eight, and a 35-year-old man. But the penalty for allowing a gun to be accessed by a child who then kills himself or someone else, it's only a misdemeanor, which seems to me to be absolutely mind-boggling. Let's talk to Phil in Cudahy. Phil, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, you know, I mean, I guess we all wish that uh, these gun owners would be educated and uh, or even some sort of a, a certification. Um, I, I mean, I wish when you purchased a gun, you were required to at least show basic fundamental understanding of a weapon. In this particular in, in all of these cases, you know, if we're talking about a revolver or if we're talking about a semi-automatic, a semi-automatic, you know, if you don't have ammunition racked in the slide it's not going to fire no matter what you do um guns should be stored that way if it's a revolver it has to be cocked if it's if it's loaded and most revolvers have 
safeties on him. Why is it cocked, and why isn't a, sa- you know, a safety on it? Because I doubt a five-year-old is going to be able to rack the slide of a semi-automatic uh, handgun. Or, well, or, or let, let's even be more, But let's even be more basic, Phil. If, if you've got kids, why isn't there a trigger lock? I mean, I, I, the, the idea of, of a five-year-old being able to find a gun in the first place and even start playing with it is mind-boggling to me, and then add into the fact that there, there's not a trigger lock or, or something there that you know the kid wouldn't be able to disable. I mean, it's, well, that's you've my got point. kids around the house. My God, it's, 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 it's not rocket science, for goodness sakes. Yeah, that's to my point. There's, there's no education. Yeah. I mean, I own weapons. Um, my, my kids are either out of the house or, or, the, or grown. Um, you know, they've been educated about them, even though they don't use them. Um, right. you know, I don't, I don't even use them. I just have them. Right. Um, yeah. the, the other scenarios we're talking about, unfortunately, are number one, you know, maybe they're uneducated people. Maybe they shouldn't, I mean, they shouldn't own guns. We're all entitled to own them. But if you're not educated, you can't drive a car. You shouldn't be driving a car. We know they do anyways. Uh, you know, that's no, why well, you need I mean, Phil, I mean, I, I mean, there, there are with, with the with the privilege of of owning a firearm, there comes responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities is that you, you have to do, I think, at least take reasonable steps to keep your firearms out of the hands of irresponsible people. Now, look, I, I understand you're on vacation. Somebody breaks into your house, and you've got, I don't know, you've, you've, got, a, you've got a gun case, and you've got a number of shotguns or whatever that are displayed, and somebody breaks the glass and steals the, those guns, or you're, you're a victim of a robbery. That, that's one thing. It, but it's, it's another thing to have a situation where you've got children that are in a situation where they can get easy access to the firearms and not only to the firearms but as we were just talking about where, where there's not a trigger lock the, this is it, it's not like you need some sort of sophisticated i don't know software to, to block attacks or stuff it, it's as simple as it possibly can be you know put put the damn trigger lock on the thing and then the child if he gets it and it's mind-boggling to me that the child could get it in the first place but if the child gets access to it they're not going to be able to do anything with it. And so you've got, you know, the, the child gets it. The gun is obviously loaded and there's no trigger locks. Gee, what could go wrong with that? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to uh, Peter on the North Shore. Peter, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Hi, Peter. I got a question for you. Why does it always occur in one location? It doesn't occur in any of the counties surrounding Milwaukee County and in the central city of Milwaukee specifically. Why is that? We don't well, need this more. One was on the, this, one, this, this was I'm on the sure south side. The, I, this was well, on the south is, side. Uh, so, okay. Well, yeah, okay. So okay. that's central south side. Why is it that? And my other question, my, my other question is, won't the, the relatives, the immediate family, whoever the family member was who had this firearm, won't they be punished enough by the relatives of this tragedy. Uh, we don't need more enhancements. We don't have to run away and react and to pass a law immediately or enhance laws or change laws because of one incident when I think the relatives will punish this person, the owner of this gun, severely. He'll, he or she will go through hell if the relatives care about this at all, which I would assume they do. I'm assuming they think it's a tragedy also. 
But right, I well, think Peter, thanks for calling. I appreciate the well. I appreciate I appreciate the perspective, and, and that's that's always the argument that you hear in cases like this. It's and you know, and we used to have these cases that that was the argument when it came to like the co-sleeping deaths. Remember, you had, used to hear about that a lot. It's like okay, you you don't need to punish the mother or the father because the fact that the child is, is gone that is enough of of a penalty. And I guess I've I've always sort of disagreed with that because the, the only there, there's a number of reasons why we, we punish people what why we, we have laws part of it is to punish the people that have done it the the other thing is to um, act as a deterrent to quote unquote send that message maybe to other people that you, you you've got to be more careful with this that you cannot do this and I guess I just bring this up because we have all these different laws that that criminalize you know gross negligence when it comes to kids that we want to protect kids but when it comes to letting a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old have access to a gun that they then use to kill somebody else or themselves that the, the only penalty is you know up to 12 months in in a county jail now maybe you think that that penalty is, is enough Maybe that again that the fact that you know something's happened and a, a child has lost his life that's enough psychic penalty moving forward that you don't need to increase it. I probably I mean I, I disagree with that, but I think it's at least a conversation that we need to have because candidly I'm just I continue to be frustrated with the the, the enormous number of kids who are getting shot on the, on the streets of Milwaukee, shot while they're standing at their dinner tables, and then shot in presumably their apartments or friends' apartments or relatives' apartments because they were able to get access to guns that they should have never had in the first place. We can't confiscate all firearms. That that's not just that's not going to happen. It is not reasonable, and I'm not an advocate for it. But I am an advocate for saying to people who are irresponsible with their firearms and who, by being irresponsible with their firearms, cause or contribute to really bad things happening, like a five-year-old gets access to a gun and shoots themselves, they need to be held accountable. And I'm not sure a Class A misdemeanor I'm not sure the punishment fits the crime. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I was listening to Greg Matzik's sports broadcast. How can Wisconsin seriously be being considered to, to get an NCAA tournament bid? Now, they're... The Wisconsin Badgers have had a very, very long run of great success play, playing basketball. And as a Marquette fan, it kind of pains me to say that. But th- this is a down year for the team. They're, the Big Ten, it's not the Big Ten anymore. There's 14 teams in the Big Ten. Um, and, and they're in 10th place. They're, they're 7-9 and nine in the Big Ten, 15-11 and 11 overall. And they're, they're apparently in consideration for one of the last NCAA tournament team tournament bids. It's like you, you almost want to say, why don't they just open up the NCAA tournament to everybody, add an extra round or two, and just let everybody in? Because, again, 
Now, it might be that the Badgers go on and they go on a streak and they win their last four games and things like that. But but right now, you know, 10th out of 14 teams, um, a losing record in their conference. How, how how do you get into the NCAA tournament like that? And and if, if you can, maybe the answer is, like I say, just to let everybody in and let the chips fall where they may. All right. On a macro level, you can argue the strategy worked. On a micro level, it was a huge failure. The uh, And we're going to talk about the state Supreme Court race a little bit later in the show. But um, one of the races that was being very closely watched was the uh, yesterday in the primary election was the 8th Senate district seat. The the eighth um, Senate district that was that was occupied for years and years by Alberta Darling, and Alberta stepped down last uh, late last fall, and so there's a, going to be a, an election held to fill the remainder of of her Senate seat. There are three. There were three Republicans running for the nomination. Um, Dan Canodal, state representative, Thienesville Village President Van Mobley, and Janelle Brandigan, who's also a, a state representative. Um, it was interesting because in this race, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin decided it was a good use of donors' money to essentially try to try to have Brandigan win the race. Janelle Brandigan is, I think it's fair to say, a loose cannon. She's one of these you know, hardcore election deniers. And what the Democratic Party did is they sent out, they spent a bunch of money to send out mailers essentially saying, okay, Janelle, that were essentially designed in a backhanded way to generate conservative support for her. Oh, she's the candidate that Trump supports. Oh, she's, you know, too conservative for the district. All those things which were an effort to try to convince people to vote for her. Why did the Democratic Party of Wisconsin want people to vote for her? Because this is, it's a Republican-leaning district, and if she had been the nominee, you could tell she would have just been slaughtered with all sorts of ads and claims that she's too conservative and that she's a loose cannon and all these things, which, by the way, when it comes to loose cannon, she is a loose cannon. A- absolutely. She would have definitely, of the three people running for that nomination, she would have been the candidate with the least chance of being able to hold that seat for Republicans. And so what the Democrats were doing is they were counting on Republicans being stupid and not recognizing that what this was was when the Democratic Party sends out a mailer that, again, in sort of a backhanded way, tries to tout a Republican candidate. They're trying to select the weakest Republican candidate or what they perceive is the weakest Republican candidate um, for the general election. At least in the case of this Senate district, it failed miserably because uh, Dan Canodal got um, about 60-plus percent of the vote. He was overwhelmingly nominated, and my guess is that he's going to win handily when the uh, election comes up. I mean, who exactly knows? But at least on a micro level, this strategy failed. Now, the flip side of this, and we'll get into it a little bit more a little bit later when we talk about the Supreme Court race, is you have all these special interest groups, these liberal special interest groups that wanted to to, to torpedo Jennifer Doro because their belief was that Dan Kelly will be a significantly weaker candidate against the the chosen liberal candidate, Janet Prosewitz. And so there was close to a million dollars spent by the left 
trying to torpedo, in this case successfully, Jennifer Doro. Um, she came close but wasn't able to overcome, I think, some of the negative funding that were put in by these these leftist groups. So, you know, you have a situation where, at least on the macro sense, the statewide level, all this spending trying to get Kelly nominated instead of Doro because the perception was Kelly would be weaker, well, it, it succeeded. And I guess conservatives are going to have to figure out where they go or where we go from here. But at least on the local level in the state Senate district race, that the spending to try to, I don't know, confuse people or to try to have the left cherry pick the candidate that would run against their candidate, that kind of failed. All right. Last week, Tony Evers came out with, with his budget, which is essentially, again, it's dead on arrival. They, you, if, if Robin Voss would have taken the budget document and, and pulled the Nancy Pelosi, you know, like tearing up the speech, it would have been effectively the same because the legislature is just going to kind of start from scratch in rewriting this. But that doesn't mean that there's not interesting things that are in the budget, including some stuff which, to me, I don't know, it, it makes no sense. Well, one of the things that the governor wants to deal with is is the issue of reckless driving. Okay, now, as we talked about last week, instead of confronting reckless driving directly and, say, making it a crime after you're convicted of your second offense, reckless driving, and, you know, making, giving the state the authority to seize your vehicles, instead of doing stuff that, you know, holds people accountable, the governor's response was, well, let's increase the fines. And and my point was 77% of the people in Milwaukee who get tickets for reckless driving don't pay them. So what difference does it make if it's a $50 fine or a $500 fine? They're not paying them anyways. Um, But among the other things that Tony Evers was talking about for as as under the guise of, of reckless driving was, you know, spending on, Uh, what they call traffic calming agents, which is basically infrastructure stuff like roundabouts and things like that. Um, And then one of the things he wants to do is as part of an effort to curb reckless driving, what he wants to do is restore driver's licenses to all adults regardless of immigration status. Um, there is something, and I love the way these groups come up, and, and they pick these names of groups to try to convince people that their agenda is something other than their agenda. For example, this group called the Wisconsin Coalition for Safe Roads. Hey, how can you be opposed to safe roads? Um, which is really a group organized by members of Voces de la Fratera, which is one of the organizations that pushes for amnesty and rights for illegal aliens and things like that. But they call themselves the Wisconsin Coalition for Safe Roads. So they're completely 100% in on what Tony Evers wants to do, which is take people who are illegally in this country and allow them to get driver's licenses. Going back to 2006, Wisconsin passed a law that said in order to get a driver's license, you have to demonstrate proof of either citizenship or legal residency in the U.S. to obtain a driver's license. Um, if you do not, if you are not a legal resident in the state and you don't have a Social Security number, you cannot obtain legally a driver's license. Tony Evers says one of the ways we curb reckless driving is to, I don't know, 
Give people who are illegally in this country driver's licenses. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. guess I've got two points, and I invite you to react. First of all, this has nothing to do with reckless driving. I mean, the, the fact that you've got somebody who's blowing through a red light at 85 miles an hour over and over again has nothing to do with their, their legal status or not. Giving them legal status isn't going to change the fact that they've blown through that red light. So that's not what this is all about. So let's understand, at least in my opinion, this has nothing to do with reckless driving at all. Secondly, it's Evers' way by putting it under the umbrella of reckless driving to try to convince people, okay, maybe we should give folks who are illegally in this country access to driver's licenses, which... I go back to the old thing, which is, what part of illegal don't we understand? And the argument seems to be, well, people are here illegally anyways, they're driving anyways, so why don't we just allow it to happen? 855-616-1620, what do you think? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. I'm shocked. I am shocked, I tell you, that our text line is exploding with people who think that that maybe the governor has a different sort of agenda. And look, here's the bottom line. To try to say that by giving people who are in this country illegally driver's licenses is going to somehow cut down on reckless driving, it's like... Okay, I've used this example before. It's like former President Lyndon Johnson. He might not have been the first one to say this, but he said it prominently. You know, don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining. There, there's there's no way that Evers can even think that this is true because giving people Ill, who are here illegally driver's licenses has nothing to do, at least in my opinion. There's no way it makes any difference at all with reckless driving. You can, If you want to make the argument that this is something we should do because the people who are here, here illegally are going to drive Anyways, so we might as well get them into the system. Okay, make that argument, but it has nothing to do with reckless driving, let's be honest. Now, a number of you are a little bit skeptical. Jeff, giving people in this country illegally driver's licenses is just a Trojan horse for giving them legal IDs so they can vote, which some other states and cities have already permitted. It's not about reckless driving. It's about more potential votes. Um, yes, Jeff, the governor is telling Wisconsinites just how stupid he thinks we all are by trying to float this stuff as anything to do with reckless driving. Um, I think there is an element of that. Um, Jeff, giving uh, people a driver's license would allow them to vote. No need to apply for citizenship. Well, it, you know. It's interesting that a number of texters are making that point, because keep in mind one of the other things that that Tony Evers wants to do as part of this budget proposal, and it's not going to happen, just like giving people who are in this country illegally um, driver's license. It's not going to happen, but it does all – it's sort of interesting to see where the plan is in this, because remember one of the other things that Tony Evers wanted to do as part of the budget process. He wanted to automatically register – Anybody who had a driver's license as a voter. Remember that, that whole motor voter thing, which you, you can't do right now. We don't participate in that in, in Wisconsin. But he wanted to do that as well. Now, I understand the argument would be, well, 
I'm not saying that um, we, we'd go that extra step, and just because you give people a driver's license, it would already it would already be there. But you know, there's you know that that's the step, and you know that is what this is leading to, <clears throat> and these things are all interrelated. But I think the the bottom line of this is, to me, it's an absolute non-starter. I'm all in favor of cracking down on reckless driving. It is something I talk about on this program on a regular basis. And to me, the start, if we want to be serious about this, it starts with the legislature, and it starts with, again, just like we do with drunk driving. And I'm back on my soapbox again. I apologize, but I'm sick of people dying on the roadways by repeat reckless drivers. It starts with like we do with drunk driving. First offense, drunk driving is effectively an ordinance violation. It's a civil penalty. Second offense, drunk driving is a crime. I would make first offense, rec- I'd leave first offense reckless driving what it is and, you know, fines or whatever. But for second offense and up, at that point in time, I think it becomes a crime. And yes, I think we should prosecute people. That's the answer. I think, to dealing with reckless driving. And you can do all this other stuff as well. You can say we'll have traffic calming agents or things like that. I don't care. That that's, doesn't seem to me that hurts one way or the other. But let's understand it's not going to make any difference unless we get those repeat reckless drivers off the streets. And as long as we're putting people in jail, I'm also there saying let's start towing cars as well. I mean, that's that's the you know um, bottom line. Um, let's see. Jeff, here's a thought. Let's give um, a whole bunch of perks to people who are in this country illegally. Oh, wait, we're already doing that. Well, there there is that element. And again, when you hear these stories and you see, oh, well, the Wisconsin Coalition for Safe Roads thinks it's a good idea. Well, the Wisconsin Coalition for Safe Roads is really an organization created by a group that's out there pushing for quote-unquote, expanded rights for people who are in this country illegally. Understand, you know, what's going on, follow the money, and you'll start to see what the agenda is that people have. Hey, Wisconsin, it might be cold and really crummy out right now, but soon, trust me on this one, it's going to be warming up and you'll need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase. Presented by Great Midwest Bank, and this week we're brought to you by Bruce's team. Bruce's team, taking seniors from overwhelmed to I can do this for over 35 years. Visit their website at brucesteam.com or give them a call. 262-242-6177. That's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase right here on WTMJ. Um, In the next segment of the program, we're going to talk about what happened with the Supreme Court race and what will undoubtedly be the dominant issue over the next six weeks. I did want to note something. Um, In the April election, I think April 4th, that's that first Tuesday in April, there there was a legal challenge trying to keep these referendum off the ballot. That failed a couple days ago. Um, Two Republican-sponsored measures, a constitutional amendment to allow judges to consider additional factors when setting bail for violent offenders. That is going to be on the ballot. There were a number of pro-defendant 
groups that were trying to block it on a technicality. That failed. There's also going to be an advisory referendum asking voters about work search requirements for some unemployed individuals. Um, That's going to remain on the ballot as well. So that's something that just like the Democrats did with marijuana and abortion referendums over the last couple of years, those might be two things which will help juice or goose the the conservative vote coming up in April. We'll see. So very glad to have you with us. Join us at WTMJ for a day-long broadcast. Annex Wealth Management presents WTMJ Conversations 2023, sponsored by Smart Spaces. All the names you know that make Milwaukee operate, long-form conversations with professionals from all sorts of industries, including politics, sports, the arts, and more. Wednesday, March 1st, starting at 8 a.m., Annex Wealth Management presents WTMJ Conversations 2023 right here on, wait for it, WTMJ. Okay, Uh, yesterday, the... Well, we had a large number of people who went to the polls for a primary election, and in at least one race I don't think was surprising at all. Janet Protasewicz, who is the very, very liberal Milwaukee County Court judge who has been getting a ton of money from both the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, again, she's the best, she will be, if elected, the best Wisconsin State Supreme Court justice that California and New York money can buy. She advanced, and she was the top vote-getter. As expected, second and third were the two conservative candidates who kind of split the the vote. Um, But Dan Kelly, former justice on the state Supreme Court, he beat um, Jennifer Doro, Waukesha County Circuit Judge, by, you know, 10,000, 15,000 votes, however it turns out, maybe a few more than that. Uh, Doro ran very, very well in her home county of Waukesha County and in Milwaukee County, Dan Kelly ran well out state and the margins that Doro was able to build up were not sufficient to overcome that. In addition, as we were talking about earlier, this was a race where dark money groups on the left put in a, a ton of money, almost a million dollars in trying to trash Jennifer Doro. Um, also, I think there was probably you know some liberals who decided that they were going to vote for Kelly, at least in the primary, because they they wanted to put him over the top, because the perception, and maybe it's going to turn out to be wrong, the perception is that he is the weaker candidate. So in any event, whether it was the dark money group spending and the negative ads against Doro trying to influence this election, the top two finishers are are Kelly and are are, um, Protosewitz. The primary vote, and it's tough to I don't know that this necessarily translates into the general election. If you look at the percentage of the vote that the liberal candidates got, it would be about 54%, and the conservatives got it was about 46%. I I think that's a tough jump to necessarily say that's going to translate into, you know, what happens in the, the general election. But we've got six weeks to go. Interestingly enough, uh, this, this race is, of course, getting national attention. It's not just money that is pouring in from liberal donors in New York and liberal donors in in California who are trying to influence the race, but it's also getting all sorts of national attention. I mean, I'm story today, Washington Post, story today, the New York Times. I mean, you have you have 
liberal groups all over the country who are looking at this Wisconsin Supreme Court race and are saying this this could be the most significant race of 2023. And they're hitting, especially the liberal groups, they're raising money and they're, they're going to be pushing this in a big way. Whether or not conservative groups respond um, in a like fashion, I, I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. But one of the things and one of the reasons why the left is pushing this so hard comes down to, to one issue. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago when the New York Times wrote about this, that they said that the issue is, wait for it, one word, the issue is abortion. Because right now, Wisconsin does not allow abortions. There is an 1849 law on the books that says, you know, abortions are illegal. So since Roe versus Wade was overturned, that law has been presumably in effect and abortions have effectively stopped. There are three liberal members of the state Supreme Court, and I think who have to ultimately consider this law. And I think the general thinking is they're all prepared to throw out this law. Janet Protasewicz has made no bones about the fact that she believes that abortion rights should be allowed to women. And there's no question. I mean, I don't think she's been even subtle about it, that you know that's how she's going to decide this case. If she gets on the bench, she will in all likelihood join with the three other liberals on the bench, and they're going to strike down the abortion issue. So that, I think, is going to be the dominant issue. My guess is that while you've got all sorts of other things, crime, judicial philosophy, all the, these different things that are out there, gerrymandering, act, and all these different things that the court could consider. My prediction is, just like in the general election last November, my guess is that you're going to see a ton of money spent, number one, and 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of that spending is going to be tied to the question of of abortion and the implicit or maybe even explicit suggestion that is if you elect protosewitz well abortion will once again be at least not prohibited in the state of Wisconsin. Our number is 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line in the real world is this upcoming election over the next six weeks, in the real world, is it going to be about really anything other than abortion? And is this really set itself up as being pretty much a referendum on whether or not we should have abortion in the state of Wisconsin? My prediction is is yes, it is. It's one of the reasons why I, I have urged all along the legislature and the governor to try to work to figure out some accommodation after uh, the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade. But that has not happened at this point in time. So I I think the next six weeks, it's going to be about abortion, um, pure pure and simple. And and Dan Kelly might not want to make it about abortion, and he might want to talk about judicial philosophy and all that stuff. I don't think any of that matters. I think this is going to be all abortion all the time. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. I, you know, we'll know. But my my prediction is the state supreme court race. You know, there, there there's going to be 
other issues that are talked about, judicial philosophy and things like that. To, to me, this is going to all be about abortion. I think that you're going to see a ton of money poured into supporting the liberal candidate, largely because this is the way to overturn Wisconsin's 1849 anti-abortion law. And then, you know, I guess we go back to unregulated abortions, I think, is how it is, which is why I've been saying I think the legislature should have moved to address this to take the issue off the table. Jeff, I think you're correct. Our GOP in Madison had opportunities to address the abortion issue. Now they've set themselves up for a loss of the conservative in the state Supreme Court. Jeff, I totally agree with you. Um, I listened to Dan Kelly's victory statement last night. He reiterated how important it is to uphold the laws, not to tell voters how they feel about certain issues. However, I believe that certain exceptions should have been written into Wisconsin law. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I understand the, the argument's going to be, no, you want a judicial conservative, you want somebody who interprets the laws. I, I get it, but I think in the real world, we've moved past that. And that's why, again, I predict that, you know, just like we saw in the fall, an enormous amount of the spending, it, it seemed like, well, three out of every four ads for Democratic candidates dealt with abortion. I, I think you're going to see the same thing here. Keith in Grafton. Keith, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're exactly sure. right. Um, this is, yeah, this is a disaster for Republicans. If there's, you know, we're conservatives, but I'll be honest with you, in our own family, there's that question of who do you vote for right now? And if there's any leaders out there, those upper, upper folks in the Republican Party, this is a huge problem for you. This race is not going to be won by Kelly. Um, the abortion issue is, and, you know, a woman's right to choose. It's very, very difficult to tell somebody, hey, you can't do that. Um, so with that said, this is a perfect storm, a disaster for the Republicans, because you're talking all the redistricting stuff. Abortion, obviously, is at the top of that list. This is a bad, bad time for us right now. Yeah, th- thanks for call, Keith. I-, I don't think there's any way you can you can sugarcoat it. Now, I'm I, the, the whole I mean, the other issue people talk about is gerrymandering. I I'm. I'm much less sympathetic to, to that. I mean, I, I understand that this is a convenient way to say, well, you know, you've got all these demo It's a 50-50 state, and yet the you know, Republicans have overwhelming control in the legislature. Well, part of that reason is because geographically it's not a 50-50 state. Geographically, the Democrats cluster in Milwaukee and in, in Madison. So um, if you have rules that strike down some districts, I don't believe that that's going to dramatically change the makeup of the legislature unless you can somehow convince, I don't know, lots of Democrats to leave Madison and go out into, like, the Fox Valley and things like that. But but abortion, there, there's no question about it. This This is... This is a different sort of thing. The Supreme Court strikes down that 1849 abortion law, and then there are, at least my interpretation, no restrictions at all on uh, abortion, and then, you know, people are happy. Now, if you want to look forward, if you want to say, okay, if the Supreme Court does that, well, then that issue is now off the table. So in 2024, you don't have people, at least in Wisconsin, running on the abortion issue anymore, which is why I have been arguing for the longest time the last year that I think the Wisconsin legislature should have taken this issue up, recognizing where the vast majority of people are on the question of abortion. But that that, that opportunity is now out the window, 855 616 
1620. Jeff, look at the combined vote totals for the conservative versus the liberal candidates. Kelly is going to get smoked in the general election because a lot of women want their abortions back. Okay, let me, let me break that into two thoughts. First, I, I've been watching elections for a long time. Judging, trying to determine who's going to win an election by the, the primary vote total, it's, it is an, that's imperfect at best. When Kelly lost in 2020, for example, in the primary, he had over 50% of the vote. He ended up losing by like 10 points or, or more, in part because the primary election, the, the general election, was on the same day as the state Democratic Party, uh, the state as the um, Democratic presidential primary, so that helped juice turnout. But Kelly in the primary had over 50% of the vote. That didn't translate into the general election. So be, be really careful when you say, oh, the liberals got 54%, the conservative got 46%. That, to me, is a very, very misleading thing. The abortion issue, though, is not misleading. Scott in New Berlin. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Uh, yeah, I think when you take rights away, and we like to talk about abortion, but you can't even get rid of a miscarriage in Wisconsin. So it's not just abortion. It's just normal health care. I'm glad you brought up the gerrymandering. They can't fix it in Madison because it is so gerrymandered. If you try to put any limits at all, they're going to get primary from the right, and yeah, you can't say vacant, empty land counts as where people live for gerrymandering. And the other point is, I mean, it was, I mean, so dishonest to mention Democratic black money and super PACs and not. Okay, well, Scott, I want to keep on. I want to keep. Okay, Scott, I want to keep I mean, on unfocus now. Uh, thanks to call. I want to keep on unfocus, and I, I let you take a couple of your different shots in there. My point here in the Supreme Court race, pe- people aren't going to. The average voter doesn't care about gerrymandering. Maybe some of, and I, for for example, I, I still don't believe that that is the reason why that you have these districts. And I understand there's some people on the left who want to essentially turn Madison into the these a whole series of of super state representative thing areas and and run assembly districts from Madison up to I don't know the border or whatever. That that's. I don't believe that that's going to have a significant effect because the vast majority of the state of Wisconsin geographically remains overwhelmingly Republican. And until Democrats figure out a way to overcome that, I don't think that's going to change the the dynamics in a significant way. But time will tell. Abortion is the issue that I think people can will relate to and will get them to the polls. And I don't know how the conservative candidate finesses that. I mean, that's the issue that we have here. Um, there, there's no no question about it. I think that's going to be the, the problem that people have to deal with. Um, Jeff, the state legislature, by choosing to do nothing, is doing something. Um, this will be the primary issue in the state Supreme Court race, and it's one of the reasons why people will vote for pro Um yeah, I, I think, you know, that's it. Um, you know, what our previous caller said about, you know, you can't have mi- the miscarriage care. I, I don't I don't want to go down this route. That, I believe, is completely and totally false. But, again, my overall point is that this abortion issue was a powerful issue in the general election last November. There's just no denying it. And I think it's going to be a powerful issue in the April election. If abortion wasn't on the table, I think the state Supreme Court race would have a markedly different look. But it 
is on the table. So the question becomes, you know, how is that going to be dealt with? And we'll see that in lots and lots of ads over the course of the next uh, six weeks or so. One of our texters says, Jeff, I'm just not clear. How does the case get to the state Supreme Court? Well, what happens is there's a lawsuit. It, typically, there, there's, you, you know, maybe there's ways you can short circuit this, but typically you file a lawsuit in circuit court. Um, the loser at the circuit court level, if they choose, files an appeal. Typically, the appeal goes to the state appellate court. The state appellate court hears it. They come out with a decision. At that point in time, the loser. Um, can file a request that the state Supreme Court take the case, and they can decide they don't have to take the case. The justices decide if they want to hear it or not, but that's kind of the process. Now, again, there's there's ways you can short-circuit that and direct appeals and things, but in general, so you, you want to challenge a, a law, well, and there is, for example, there's a challenge to this 1849 abortion law, which is already working its way through the court system. So it will be heard, I think, by the state Supreme Court sometime later this year. So that's the process. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. Wait a second, Jeff. Did I hear you correctly at the end of the last hour? Did I really understand you to say that Joe Biden is doing something and he's right? Well, yes, you you heard that correctly. Bear with me. Here's the deal. Um, Biden recognizes that what is going on right now at the border is an absolute mess. And it has been an absolute and total mess since he took over because it's undeniable that there are people who are flocking into this country from Mexico and other countries who believe that they will be treated differently under the Biden administration than under the Trump administration. So they have been putting their lives in danger, coming all from different places in South America to try to come into this country. And even Joe Biden understands that this crisis at the border, because even though we are a nation of immigrants, there's no question about it, you you can't have hundreds or thousands of people pouring into border communities over, you know, on a a daily or a weekly basis. We, We just don't have the infrastructure to deal with that. Part of the problem is a glitch in the law because what happens, and we have talked about this before, you have people who come into the country illegally. And the easy answer is, okay, well, what part of illegal don't people understand? They should be turned around and sent back. However, there is a law which suggests that if you come into this country illegally, but you say, I am seeking asylum, I am fleeing from persecution, the way the law operates is that you are not allowed to be deported until you have an asylum hearing. So what happens is, People pour into this country, they are confronted, and they say, no, I'm seeking asylum. Well, the problem is, in the real world, we don't have anywhere near enough immigration judges. We don't have enough immigration you know, prosecutors. We don't have the infrastructure right now to handle 
thousands and thousands of people coming in on a weekly or, or monthly basis. So what happens is these people come into the country illegally. The vast majority of people are not going to qualify for asylum. The rules on that are very, very strict. But by simply saying, I want asylum, you, under the law, can delay the process. So you get scheduled for a hearing. Okay, well, that hearing might be 18 months. So you are essentially turned loose on your own recognizance and told, well, come back when your hearing gets scheduled. Well, as a practical matter, people are just in the country. The last you see them is when you release them on their own recognizance, and and they're gone. And even if you schedule that hearing two years from now, those people, they're, 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 they're somewhere else in the country. You're never going to find them. So th- this claim of asylum, even though the vast majority of them, it's not going to go anywhere, this claim of asylum has the effect of allowing people to essentially come in and legally stay in the country. Trump pulled that back, and under, the, under COVID, he used, they, they call this Title 42, he used authority that he had under COVID to say, we're going to suspend this program. And now there's a lawsuit saying, okay, well, the COVID pandemic is over, so Trump's ability, that the, whether it was legal or not what he did, that emergency has now ceased to exist, so we've got to go back to the old system. Well, Biden knows that it's a mess now. But if you get rid of that Title 42 thing and you just allow everybody to just stay in this country when they say asylum, they know it's going to be a complete and total disaster. So what Joe Biden has done, he's, he's rolled out a rule that it's available for comment for 30 days, but presumably it is going to take effect right at the same time that this Title 42 thing changes. And here is what Biden is saying. It's a modification to the asylum policy. So under the proposal that he is suggesting, what would happen is if you are coming to the United States and you pass through a second, you pass through a country on your way to the United States, So let's say you're coming from somewhere in South America and you go through a couple different countries, including Mexico, before you get to the United States. What Biden's rule would say is if you didn't stop along the way and request asylum in Mexico, you're not eligible for asylum in the United States. If you didn't stop again, figure out where you started from. But the rule would essentially say you have to ask for asylum along the way or else we're not going to let you stay in this country. And the thinking behind this is, okay, if somebody is really legitimately fleeing persecution in their home country, they they should have to at least request asylum in the country nearest there. You shouldn't be able to cherry pick and say, okay, we're going to go through four or five or six countries and then then we're going to request asylum. Now, this would do nothing for people who are coming in from Mexico, but it would have an impact on people who are requesting asylum from other countries because they'd have to, for example, ask for asylum in Mexico. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I think I think what's going on at the southern border is an absolute disgrace. 
Part of it is because of the law, and part of it is because this there is this asylum loophole that you can literally drive a large truck through, which is people who have no real legitimate claims to asylum being able to stay simply by saying, I want asylum, knowing that we're not going to be able to process their claims. But what Biden is suggesting is, okay, in a way to limit this legally, you, you got to ask for asylum somewhere else along the way. And if you haven't done that and you haven't been turned down, say, in Mexico, and you're coming from somewhere else in South America, then you can't stay here. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. And if your knee-jerk reaction is to reject something because Biden did it, uh, let me tell you this. The American Civil Liberties Union is already threatening to sue because they don't like this policy. I think until you get the law changed, this is the only reasonable thing to do. Will it stop people from coming into the country? No, but it makes a lot more sense than what we were doing before, doesn't it? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I understand because, you know, Politics is so tribalized that we have to look at stuff and say, oh, it's it's Joe Biden. So it's got to be great or it's Joe Biden. It's got to be wrong. I, I think what he is talking about at, at the border, which actually has people on the left completely and totally outraged. But it is a recognition that the border is out of control. So what Biden is talking about doing is all right. I, I, he wants to essentially continue a policy that Trump put into effect, which will make it more difficult for people to essentially come in and stay in this country without um, knowing that knowing that they're not going to be able to gain uh, um, asylum. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, I think this is quite reasonable, actually. I think, yeah. Gail in Wauwatosa says, glad he finally did something. I think it's way too late. So many people are here already, and how do you really know what they did or how they passed through? I understand that this is this is an issue, and I understand that the problems at the border have gotten worse since Biden took over. This is, I think, one of his ways of dealing with this. Jeff, um, Biden is a centrist. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's what the texture says. I'm not a fan because I'm more liberal, but conservatives should definitely be giving Biden a tip of the hat here at the very least. Well, I think that there's an, an element of that there, and you can criticize him for other things that have gone to uh, with the border. I think that that's a fair thing. Jeff, five million illegal immigrants later, he finally gets it. This is the same policy Trump tried to put in place, but was shut down by the courts. Um, same with Trump's remain in Mexico policy. But now it's a good idea. Well, it's always been a good idea. And by the way, it's the policy that the United States government has been following using the, the COVID, using COVID as the emergency. But we're no longer in a COVID emergency. That's just the reality. So you, you need to have some changes. One of our texters makes perhaps the larger point. The big picture problem with immigration is decades of no leadership um, on passing common sense immigration legislation. There's plenty of blame to go around for both parties, multiple administrations, Democrats and Republicans. On, on that note, I, I, I do agree. You know, there 
there were opportunities for immigration reform. Um, certainly, when, when Donald Trump first took office and Republicans controlled both ha- aspects of the House, both the House and the Senate, there, there were opportunities for this. But unfortunately, nobody could agree. T- to me, you know, you, you start with having to secure the border. And the left was never willing to do that in a meaningful sort of fashion. And then the question becomes, what about the people that are in this country legally, the, the dreamers, for example? And my point had always been that we, we have limited immigration resources. That That's just the, the reality. And I understand people say, well, what part of illegal don't you understand? But but there's you always have to pick and choose. And for the vast majority of the dreamers, for example, the kids that were brought, their mom and dad might have come into this country illegally, but they were raised here and they've lived here for 25 years and they haven't created a problem. We, I think, need to and needed to create some form of path for, if not citizenship, some form of legal residency. But you can't do that unless you crack down on the border. And the left didn't want to crack down on the border, and the right didn't want to offer like paths to uh, at least legal residence for people unless there were the ability to crack down on the border. And so as a result, nothing got done, and we're in the same leaky boat that we've been into for the longest time. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I, I have a link to a story, and this is this is another one where it, it takes a lot to have Fox News hosts and CNN news hosts and MSNBC news hosts come together and, and agree. But this is one of those stories. It's like, you know, dogs and cats lying down together. In, in, in Fulton County, Georgia, right, there was this investigation conducted by a grand jury into determining whether or not Donald Trump uh, illegally interfered with the Georgia election. And remember, the, and then the, so the grand jury in Georgia, they, they don't have the ability to indict, but they have an ability to investigate. And then what happens is they can make references. They can refer stuff to the prosecutor who ultimately looks at the evidence generated by the grand jury and decides whether or not they're going to bring charges or not. Now, I come from a federal system, and in the federal system, Grand jury proceedings are secret. It is a crime for grand jurors or for prosecutors, for example, who present evidence in front of the grand jury. It is a crime for them to disclose what goes on in front of the grand jury. It's it's a criminal act, and you can be prosecuted if you do that. Now, in Georgia, it is apparently not a crime. It's a crime to disclose grand jury deliberations, but jurors can talk about what happens in front of the grand jury as long as it's not their, their deliberations. Although this is a practice that almost nobody does because nobody thinks it would be a very good idea. Well, over the last two days, the foreperson for this grand jury in Fulton County that was conducting the investigation of, of the Trump thing, she decided, apparently on her own, that she wanted to go on her own publicity tour. And she sat down and gave a series of rambling, kind of bizarre interviews talking about how, well, I know the judge said we weren't supposed to talk about this, but I'm going to talk about that. I'm not presuming to say I know more, and, and there there might be all sorts of charges coming out about this, and, and you know, I'll, I'm not going to name names, but anyways, you almost have to watch this. She looks like she's crazy, 
And oh, it is interesting because all these different legal commentators are looking this at this and they're going, oh, my God, because if I was the prosecutor, my my case, if I were thinking about bringing perjury charges or bringing charges against Donald Trump, my case just got so much more difficult because you have this juror who has decided that she's going to go do these these public interviews talking about her impressions and things like that. And, of course, it, if there are charges now, one of the first arguments is going to be, hey, this whole process was tainted because you, you had – Again, you had biased jurors or whatever. It's one of the reasons why the judge encourages people not to talk. Typically, you're you're best to not talk. I've never, I will say this honestly, I've never seen anything like this. And interestingly, a lot of the commentators, both on the left and the right, are looking at this. And it, it takes a lot to render people speechless. But I think anybody familiar with the grand jury system um, even though it's different in the federal system than it is like in Georgia, everybody's looking at this going, I can't believe this woman thought it was going to be a good idea to go out and do this, like these long form um, interviews where she kind of giggles and, well, I can't say, I can't name names, but ha, 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 we kind of all know who I'm talking about. Here, here's the bottom line. If you don't believe me, anything else I've said during the course of the, the program so far, trust me on this one. This juror, by doing what she did and giving the interviews that she did, has made any prosecutions coming from, as a result of this investigation, she has made them um, exponentially more difficult. And I'm sure um, there's a bunch of prosecutors in Atlanta who are going, who is this lady and why did she think it was a good idea? And if you've got any doubt about this, again, just, just look at some of these interviews and go, man, that that was the person who was at least one of the people who was making recommendations about whether charges should come out or not. you you got to almost see it to believe it. Okay, when we come back, a very, very controversial conversation. Please, please, please. Be careful if you are driving around. The um, you know, sometimes when we when, when we have weather events like this are going on, I, I take a segment or two of the program and and we just get reports from the field. Uh, we we did that last week with a lot of the snow. In this particular case, it's just it, it's it's really the start of this, and it's it's different depending on what part of our listening area you're in. So I, I'm not sure how productive or relevant that would be, other than to say that this is a major winter weather event and if you are out and about you really do need to be careful and i think the other thing that's going on is that the, the conditions they're not good anywhere but they're they, they're changing and can will change dramatically so please if you're out and about be, be careful okay um over the last week or so we have talked about the governor's proposal to take you know, uh, several hundred million dollars of of taxpayer money and give it to the the stadium district to pay for these improvements that need to be made to um, American Family Field over the course of the next you know twenty years or so. And as a condition of getting all the, this money up front, the Brewers would be required to extend their lease and stay in Milwaukee until at least uh, twenty forty two or something like that. And and we've talked about it from a number of perspectives. I have made the point that I think 
in some way, shape, or form, this is going to get done. I, I don't. I don't know if it's going to be the way Tony Evers has suggested, just dipping into the surplus. I, I don't know what the amount of money is going to be that's going to be put towards the improvements. And and I candidly, as we talked about the other day, you know, maybe maybe part of this should come from creating a a beer district, you know, in in West Milwaukee, and and using revenue, some revenue from that to help offset that. So I there, there's all sorts of things on the on the uh, ways you can look at it. But at the end of the day, I think it is going to get done. And the reason I have argued that I think it's going to get done is I think that there is a net benefit to having baseball in Milwaukee, southeastern Wisconsin, w- Wisconsin. I think the Brewers are a net asset and that if this is what it takes to keep them there, I, I think it, it makes sense to make that investment. Now, I, I bring this up because there's a, a really provocative piece in the local newspaper, and the headline reads, Economists will tell you public funding for stadiums is a bad idea. Why does it still happen? And uh, let me kind of summarize the article. And this is, it's, it's not necessarily an outlier position. The, the argument is that the, when taxpayers are supposed to re- invest money in, in stadiums, that it rarely turns out to be a good deal for the, the taxpayers. Now, there's a study that the MMAC, the Milwaukee Metropolitan Association of Commerce, did a couple years ago, and it said that American Family Field has generated a $2.5 billion statewide economic impact since it was built in 1999. Okay, and, and that's that, that's good. But what the, the story, at least in the newspaper, says is that what they don't point out is, okay, what, what if you would have taken the money that you used to build then Miller Park and invested it, put it in other things other than building a stadium? And could you have generated more than $2.5 billion in economic impact? So in other words, was it the best, not so much did, did the stadium generate economic return, but if you took that money that you used in Miller Park and, and you uh, put it somewhere else, would it have been worth more? And, you know, the article goes on to say, you know, a lot of times, you know, the, the states that decide to, to do this because they want the bright, shiny new toys or whatever, they, they spend the money, but oftentimes it's not the best use of the money. Now, I, and I look, I, I come at this, I always want to disclose my biases here. I'm a huge baseball fan. As I've said before, I mean, I, I'm a partial season ticket holder out of my own pocket. Um, we, of course, at WTMJ are the flagship station for the Brewers. So, I mean, there's a lot going on, and I'm really, really glad that we have a professional baseball team in Milwaukee, and I'm glad we've got a what I would describe as a state-of-the-art stadium, and I'm glad that I can go to games in April and in September and be comfortable, and I'm glad that I can go to a game when it's raining and I know the game is going to occur. So I am very, very pleased personally, that you've got a baseball team here. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that um, it's going to end up getting done because I think there's a lot of people that share my position. But I I know there's these other arguments out there. So 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Let's just, just tee this up. I mean, is public spending for a sports arena or a stadium, 
Is it worth it? Is the contribution that the sports team makes to the area, is it in fact worth it? It's easy for me to say yes because of all those those different things that were out there and the fact that I'm thrilled that we have baseball and I hope we always have baseball and I'm going to be, I'm a baseball fan but I understand that there's a lot of people who aren't baseball fans that are out there 8556161620 is spending money on stadiums arenas whatever is that is that a good use of public dollars 8556161620 we discuss in a moment Ah, John Fogarty, center field. Jeff, it's well worth it. If the team performs better and their playoff games being played, that's additional revenue and media coverage. Look at what occurred with the Bucks when they won the finals two years ago. Well, in, I mean that that is a that is a good example. If you look at if you look at Pfizer Forum and you look at the development in the Deer District and everything that is going on down there, I think you can make a strong argument that that doesn't happen unless that doesn't happen unless you have a state of the art world class facility and the commitment that the bucks have made so I, I, that's that is that's a value in some respects it it's tough you know you can say okay well if you took all the money that you invested in building five the public money that went into Pfizer and you put it somewhere else would it get a greater return or a lesser return and and i guess that's debatable as to what you do but there's no question i mean Pfizer i think is a classic example now there there's been development in the area around American Family Field, it, it's not the same as, as Pfizer, but it's a different sort of situation. It's one of the reasons why I'm a proponent of, of the beer district. Let's start with Paul. Um, Paul, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Say, I, I've always wondered how much the brewers pay in rent, if they do. Okay. No, they do. As a matter of fact, I can answer your question. See, you no longer have to wonder. Um, they they pay a little over a million dollars a year in rent. One point, it, um, the numbers I'm looking at uh, since the stadium opened in 2001, they paid about 21 million dollars in rent to the stadium district. So it's a little over a million dollars a year. And then, who pays the property taxes on that building? Uh, there isn't are, there I don't any? Believe, I don't believe there's any property taxes on on that building. Um, I I could be wrong, but I don't I don't think they they pay that. They pay rent to the stadium because the, the the building is owned by the stadium district. So it, it's a, I mean the building is publicly owned. Um, thanks for the call. I appreciate. It. So they, they so there's um and that's that's one of the reasons because it's publicly owned. That's one of the reasons why you if you were going to create like a a beer district, you you couldn't really do it in the parking lots um, because you couldn't create a, a TIF district or something like that. Um, the numbers I'm looking at, since the stadium opened, the brewers have paid about $21 million in rent to the district. They've also... They've also shelled out about $112 million in capital improvements at the ballpark and $95 million in maintenance and cleaning. So it's it's not like it's just the rent that's out there. Let's talk to Mark in Milwaukee. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. My view, it'll never be implemented, but I don't think taxpayers should spend another dime on the brewers. First of all, sour grapes, but change your name from the brewers to the loyal opposition, because that's all they are. They're a team that play other 
better equipped to go to playoffs and World Series games. You can't compare the Brewers to the Dodgers or uh, the Houston Astros. Sure, they might win some games. They've got bobbleheads. They're competitive. It's beautiful to go out to the ballpark. But I maintain they're asking average Joe and Jane citizens, here, give us money so we can maintain a healthy lifestyle of being millionaires. And I think it's got to stop, or there has to be some kind of compromise where they pay more, put a very competitive product on the field. Sure, you're going to get more people there. You're going to get more revenue. But right now, I think that they're just, to use it, they're tanking. Look at last year, they got rid of Hayter. Now we can argue about him. But, you know, they're getting rid of their high-salary players, and it's almost like, well, getting up there in money, got to get rid of them. And I think it's just a game about let's make money, let's get money when we need it from the taxpayer, but it's got to stop. So my view is not another dime. Okay, well, thanks for the call, Mark. I mean, I, I, I guess I take issue with a couple of things you said. First of all, um, I, I don't – look, the, the, we all agree that the, the Josh Hader trade was just a nightmare. It was a disaster. It was poorly thought out, and it, it backfired in a, in a big way. Now, the truth is – the, the economics of baseball, and I, I leave a lot of this conversation to you know the, the folks you know down the down the hall who you know do all the sports stuff. But the economics of baseball is Milwaukee has always suffered because it's you know you, you've got the discrepancy between the big market teams and the small market teams. Having said that, and again understanding that I'm a fan and and we are the flagship station for the Brewers, I, I don't think it's fair to say that the Brewers are tanking. I mean, they made they made the baseball playoffs in one form or another. What up? They they missed last year by a game or two, but otherwise they 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 made them what six years in in a row, and one or two of those years they came extremely close to you know making the the World Series. I mean, I can still remember that that game they lost against the the Dodgers. So yeah, yeah there's always going to be that this battle about you know can you keep some of the highest paid players, and I, I've been suggesting that as well and and it, it's true that owning a baseball team is in general just like owning a, a basketball team or a football team it's a license to print money i mean the brewers the new ownership group came in in what 2004 and, and bought the thing for um what did they buy the thing for like 400 million 250 million forget what it was but now it's worth like 1.25 billion so there's been a big return on investment but i don't think it's really fair to say that they've they've cheaped out on things i mean they signed christian yelich now you can argue that you know he he hasn't performed up to the terms of his contract but they signed him to a a, a big deal so i i mean i think the franchise has been done more than just going through the paces. I mean, for goodness sakes, we're not the Cincinnati Reds. We're not the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, the Brewers are going to be competitive this year. I, I don't know where they're going to turn out. I, are, are, are they the Dodgers? Are they the Mets when it comes to spending? No, but I, I would be shocked if they're not in the playoff hunt. And once you get into the playoffs, you know, who knows what can happen. But that doesn't change the underlying dynamic, which is, I guess, to your larger point, which is, you know, should the taxpayers be subsidizing this? And I guess my point is, it, th- this is something 
that a large number, first of all, there is definitely an economic advantage. And, you know, when the MMAC comes out with a study and says, hey, there, there's been, you know, $2.5 billion in statewide economic impact, that I, I believe that. Now, you might say, okay, well, there might have been other things that they could have done with the money that had gotten a larger return, but there's all sorts of things they could have done with the money which wouldn't have had anywhere near that return either. So you, you I, I think it's something that... On top of that, you have a state-of-the-art facility. For, forget about the Brewers for a minute. I mean, look at all the look at the concerts that they have there. You know, look at all the other stuff that goes on at American Family Field, and hopefully that stuff will continue. That's one of the reasons why I think it would be great if you West Milwaukee were able to develop uh, again something like a beer district to increase usage of it. But, you know, would, would we have been better off over the course of the last 20 years if the Brewers had left and the decrepit County Stadium had stayed there? And I know that there's people who love County Stadium, but, okay, my, my first couple years at WTMJ were the last couple years at, at County Stadium, and we would do these things, and I would get to walk through the infrastructure. I've said this before. I'm surprised OSHA allowed that place to stay open. I mean, there, I was looking. There's steam pipes hanging down. There's water dripping all over. It, it had ended it was past its useful lifespan so i look at this wonderful facility i look at the economic impact it's had and i guess i continue to think that it's money well spent and i think it's certainly worth you know making an investment now the way evers is suggesting it might not be the way it ultimately ends up but i'm sorry i'd hate to see us bail on on american family field i hate to see the brewers leave i don't think that would be good for the city i don't think it would be good for the region and i don't think it would be good for the state